I'm Autumn Lockett. And this is Mitch Randall. And you're listening to Good Faith Weekly. Welcome to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, Autumn and I are going to catch up after I've been away a couple of weeks. We're going to talk about Black History Month as at goodfaithmedia.org. We're running a series of articles this week talking about historical figures and the significance of black theologians and politicians throughout history. Then we're going to talk about the Super Bowl and that incredible halftime show by Dr. Dre and his colleagues. And then later on in the pod, Autumn and I sat down with Georgetown University professor Jacques Berlinbrau, who is talking, who's written a new book, Secularism, The Basics. And so it is a fascinating dis, uh, discussion and interview with the professor, and uh, you're going to want to hear it later on in the pod. So we'll be right back. Let's get back in the water. I'm Reverend Starlet Thomas, and I'm inviting you to join me in the water. Well, it's a virtual gathering, too. The Raceless Gospel Initiative at Good Faith Media will host its first webinar, Introducing the Raceless Gospel, on February 24th at 12 p.m. Central and 1 p.m. Eastern. We'll go down in the water of baptism, where we are invited to examine ourselves as members of Christ's body and to question why these color-coded labels stick to our skin. The webinar will be a safe space for you and for me, for all working to reconcile the North American church's history with race. It is also for those ready to embody a countercultural narrative that challenges the continued segregation of sacred space. I look forward to seeing you and to diving into this much-needed work. May our time together have rippling effects. The event is free. Please register at goodfaithmedia.org. Autumn, it's good to be home. It's good to be home. Yes, I feel like we welcomed you back, and then I think you traveled again, and now we're welcoming <laughs> you back. If you if you keep leaving, we're going to quit having these welcome parties. I just need you to know. That's right. Well, yeah, you welcome me back uh, after my stay down in South Texas. Uh, our colleague Johnny Pierce and I were down there crossing the border. Uh, we're really excited about our upcoming uh, journal uh, this spring. It's going to be completely dedicated or primarily dedicated, I should say, to migrants and the stories that we gathered down by the border, as well as the failure of the United States immigration policies. So it's a, it, was, it was a great trip. Uh, got stuck in San Antonio for three extra days because of a snowstorm here in Oklahoma City. But, you know, hey, that's three extra days of eating Tex-Mex. So who's going to complain? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And How's then after, yeah, well, I just got it. Let me say, I got a new <laughs> rower. Uh, fact, yep. uh, I'm just rowing a few extra meters here and there. There you go. <laughs> Get those uh, extra tacos off. So, that's uh, right. but then after wheels down, I went wheels or wheels back, heels up. I went to wheels up uh, to uh, Montreat, North Carolina, just outside of Asheville for a retreat. Uh, with uh, children, youth, and college ministers. And I'm just here to tell you, and I think I talked a little bit about it last week, but I just can't convey enough. They were just marvelous. I'm just so, so thankful for all that they have done during the pandemic. And as the church, we needed to be doing, we need to make certain we're doing everything to take care of them. So uh, it's just a good time, but uh, it's good to be home. Yeah, we're, we're glad that you're home. And you, you came back at sort of 
an exciting time. It's Black History Month here. Um, although I do feel like a good faith media, we sort of celebrate Black history throughout the year. It is nice to be intentional and to focus on those stories. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Uh, with our racial justice initiative, uh, or I'm sorry, with our Raceless Gospel initiative, uh, we have put an emphasis on racial justice as an organization. Uh, Reverend Charlotte Thomas, of course, leads that initiative, does a great job deconstructing race and sort of planning race with the raceless gospel and just does a fabulous job uh, communicating that message. And then all of our remarkable authors who continually write on this subject throughout the year uh, are absolutely amazing and uh, stunning, stunning uh, pieces of work uh, that are published at goodfaithmedia.org. But it is Black History Month, and I'm so glad that we're able to highlight, especially this week at Good Faith Media, uh, just the incredible uh, strides that we have made as a culture, but also the incredible strides we continue to need to make as a culture. There's a lot of a lot of work still to be done, Autumn. Mm-hmm. There, there really is, and you know, I feel like every time we sort of start poking our head above ground a little bit and asking those hard questions and having those difficult conversations, um, you know, something erupts in the news cycle that makes me wonder, like, are we really having the forward progression that we are hoping for? Yeah, I, and, and our authors are, are asking that question this entire mm-hmm. week, and so I want to encourage our listeners to go to goodfaithmedia.org and read these articles because uh, they are just absolutely remarkable uh, uh, so they're asking the important questions, uh, mm-hmm. and that's what prophets do. They, they shed light uh, into dark places and ask those appropriate and difficult questions. But at the same time, not only does light expose injustices, but it also points us towards justice. And so as Dr. King reminded us and encouraged us and inspired us to do, let's keep bending that arc of history towards justice. And uh, the more we can bend it, the better. How's that? Yeah, sometimes I want to snap it in half. I'll tell you, I get a little bit feisty sometimes, and so <laughs> I'm like, come on, but it is true, fight with metal if you if you go too quickly, but I to me, there's no too quickly. we've been we've been dealing with this and and sort of circling the same issues for so long that and I think that's I think that's where the tension comes, right? Because when you're bending something, there is a tension that builds. And there's not a pretty way to tie a bow on this thing. Like the fact that slave slavery happened, um, and it wasn't that slaves were brought here; mm-hmm. it's that people were brought here as slaves. Yeah, absolutely. You know, slave slave owners did this, you know, and 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 then the Native American na- um, narrative. There are so many elements of our history that we're not going to be able. to to make comfortable. So we have to hold this tension. Absolutely. And as our colleague uh, Starlight Thomas often points out that uh, race in itself is a human construct created mm-hmm. by Western Europeans uh, up to a certain point, you know, there was no such thing as race. There was culture. There were, uh, you know, regional identifications such as you were Scottish, you were English, you were German, uh, you were African, um, you know, you were Arab. But it wasn't until really historically recently that race began to param- or to be paramount in our descriptions of one another. Uh, you're white, I'm brown. 
starlets black, all of a sudden we started identifying people by their skin color, which was absolutely uh, the wrong direction to, to take our culture. But mm -hmm. uh, I'm so thankful that uh, we have Starlet uh, educating us and inspiring us to a new tomorrow. So, uh, so speaking of uh, this idea of bending the long arm of history towards justice or the long arc of history towards justice, uh, did you watch the Super Bowl? So I've seen the recap of the halftime show. We um, we ate queso. I made queso <laughs> from scratch, but no, did not watch the Super Bowl. But the halftime show was rocking. Well, and that's what I want to talk about. Uh, my article this week uh, addresses what happened uh, at the halftime show. For those who are unaware, if you've been living under a rock, uh, Dr. Dre, a hip hop legend. Uh, and just a, a remarkable I didn't talent. forget about Dre. <laughs> you can't forget about Dre. Uh, <laughs> he brought uh, his colleagues a lot of uh, the talent that he discovered and developed over the years. Uh, Snoop Dogg, uh, uh, as well as Eminem and Kendrick Lamar. He also invited East Coast uh, rappers Mary J. Blige and 50 Cent to come and to really perform their art and to be prophetic on the world's largest stage. And it was just absolutely glorious. As a Gen Xer, anytime I get to hear Dr. Dre and Eminem and Snoop Dogg on a stage, it just gives me all the feels of being a teenager again. <laughs> I don't know. It was just, mm -hmm. uh, it was, it was remarkable to, to, to hear them. Uh, and so it was, it was great to see, but I was perplexed along with a lot of our colleagues about the criticism that was leveled against uh, Dre and, uh, and those who were performing at the halftime show. Um, I mean, we've heard from, uh, right-wing pundits talking about how terrible the show was and uh, condemning the NFL for even inviting them to be a part of it. Um, you know, there was comments about uh, Mary J. Blige's outfit, about some of the lyrics and the messaging and Eminem uh, kneeling uh, after his song, but it just all reeked of one thing to me. Autumn, and you want to guess what that one thing is? Uh, uh, could it be, could it be racism? <laughs> it's exactly right. It's racism. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because as you have pointed out, especially, especially with the criticism of Mary J, um, what was, I mean, what she was wearing was very typical of any NFL cheerleader that we see Sunday, every Sunday, right? Yeah, she was a little more covered up than some of the the cheerleaders, and so I, so for the folks who are crying that it's sexual anarchy, um, again, I don't think I we talked about this off mic, but I, I don't think it's a sexual issue. I think it's a melanin issue. Yep, I would agree wholeheartedly, and so in my article this week, I, I really appreciate and celebrate the halftime show at the Super Bowl. But I think it was more important than just having a bunch of Gen X and, uh, and rappers perform at the Super Bowl. I think it had cultural significance to it. Because I, I'm going to admit something to the audience right now. I am just, I wouldn't say I'm a fanatic uh, about rap music, but I certainly appreciate it and celebrate it. I'm mesmerized by the lyrics and the the entertainers, the artists, really, for what they're able to convey. Their messaging and 
this is going to get me in trouble, probably going to get me in trouble in the article and uh, on the pod. But they are prophets, Autumn. Simply put, they are prophets. They, they are prophets. And I, uh, we've, been, we've been reading over your article, getting it ready for publication. And I, I like that you really laid, you know, a prophet's words next to a rap song. And there's a lot in that Venn diagram. It's, it's almost a circle. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. it yeah. really is, you know, and yeah, some of their language uh, and lifestyles may be offensive to some, but you know what? The lyrics of the, of the prophets were also offensive to their hearers and listeners. That's what a prophetic message does. It reveals the injustice of the world and calls people out. And the only mm -hmm. way to draw attention to that at times is to be in your face and to be offensive. That's the whole yeah. point of it. Uh, but I will say something really quick. Yeah. So something I learned relatively recently in the past like two or three years was that um, Rosa Parks wasn't the first black woman who said, I'm not going to move. Right. Right. Yep. But they be because our black brothers and sisters and non-binary folks are held to a higher standard mm -hmm. for some reason like they're not allowed to have a dissenting voice they're not allowed to make a mistake because the first young woman who refused to move on the bus i think maybe had a baby out of wedlock or something yep they knew they couldn't use her as the poster child for right. um, for for the social justice revolution, right? Because they needed someone who could fit um, and who was a, a face that you could put for. I mean, this is nothing against Rosa Parks, but to me, it's not unlike our criticism of of rap artists. You know, they're the prophets' messages in the Bible weren't prophetic because they were perfect, because they right. super weren't perfect. Um, and it's just, it is just so irritating. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, it seems as though if you're a minority in this country, uh, and whether that is by ethnicity or by sexuality or even by the size uh, or the smallness of your checkbook, if you are somewhat of a minority in this country, then you are held to a higher standard than mm -hmm. the, those who are in power. Yep. And therefore, you're not allowed to curse. You're not allowed to uh, to, to say the to say similar things that the powerful say, or to call out the powerful. You should know your place and be quiet. Yes, yes. And that is not only hypocritical, but it is shameful and sinful, in my opinion. Uh, when the powerful do that, and we've been hearing that all week uh, regarding uh, these entertainers who performed at the Super Bowl. So yeah. so go check out my article uh, this week. It uh, talks a little bit about the black uh, li uh, liberation theology and, uh, and ties in what happened at the Super Bowl and the criticism following. Uh, but if you're, not if you're not willing to listen to the lyrics of Kendrick Lamar, then you're not willing to listen to the lyrics of the prophet Amos. So I'm just going to leave it right there. Well, you can send all of you can send all of your comments to Mitch at goodfaithmedia.org, <laughs> and those will be forwarded to Autumn at goodfaithmedia.org. <laughs> uh, so um, you and I sat down earlier in this week with Professor Jacques. Berlinerbrow, 
and that is how you pronounce his name. I know it sounds like I'm mispronouncing it, but that is the it correct is. He's French. I just never know how many of those French consonants to say <laughs> or not. I could, I'm from Texas. Like, I can read you some Spanish any day, but not French. That's right. Well, Professor Jock, as we will call him, there we go. Uh, just uh, released a brand new book about secularism uh, called Secularism, the Basics. And it is a wonderful little read. Uh, uh, professor, the professors from Georgetown University, you might think uh, that a publication written by him might be a little nerdy or wonky uh, and academic, but uh, he intentionally wrote it for the layperson. And so it's an easy, easy read, but it's filled with really, really great information. So, Autumn, I'm going to ask you a question. Before, uh, I interview with, before I interview with the professor this week, what did you know about secularism? So I had heard the term secular, really, um, this ties right back into what we were talking about, as a description for non-Christian music, which was sort of like the, the biggest sin in, in my family. You couldn't listen to secular music. And it was a very negative thing. I think in our interview, you talk about how it is equated to Satanism, and it very much that was the context that I was raised, that secular meant sinful and of Satan. Right. I mean, I don't know about your context, but I grew up uh, in fundamentalist churches as well. And so there was kind of a hierarchy for those the, uh, those individuals and entities that we had to continue to battle to keep our purity and righteousness. And uh, secularism was part of that. Of course, so was Satan. You know, and then the worst of all was, of course, a democratic liberal. Uh, that, <laughs> yeah, that means we threw holy water on them because they were just so, so evil. But, uh, but yes, uh, I've heard this growing up, this term growing up all the time about uh, human secularism, uh, how it was destroying our culture and how it's attacking Christianity. But the reality, as the professor points out in his book and in this interview, that this idea was actually created and developed by guess who, Autumn? I bet it was the Christians. Thought-provoking Christians. Mm -hmm. From Augustine to Martin Luther to Roger Williams to even today, there are proponents of secularism who are rooted in faith, both our historical faith as well as our contemporary faith. And this is such an important point to make. And the professor does a wonderful job in his book describing that. And he, he, he also admits that there's a lot of definitions uh, that are attributed to secularism, but he centers around the one about political secularism. And that one is extremely significant for us, especially those of our brothers and sisters who call themselves Baptist, because when they were a religious minority in this country, and, and really throughout history, when uh, any person of faith was a religious minority uh, in their country, they advocated for a secular state the state would not favor one religion over another, but treat every one of them equally, as well as a person who reserved the right not to worship under the law, under the Constitution, uh, under the governance of any country. Christians would be wise to advocate for a secular state because it's only then that they're allowed to thrive uh, and be free uh, from any 
uh, infringements upon uh, their faith. So mm-hmm. it was a fascinating article. So, d- so d- did you learn anything uh, in our I, conversation? I learned a lot. And I will tell you, it, it nerds out a little bit, but I'm here for it. <laughs> I thought it was really interesting to um, to just think about what that meant. And I, in my mind, I was thinking about the fact that I used, when I was in high school, I was um, I would attend sometimes the Fellowship of Christian Athletes, although an athlete I was not. Um, I was going to say, wait a minute, were. that doesn't uh, compute. No, I, let, I lettered in band, Mitch. Um, <laughs> you can do that, did you know? Uh, I but I would go because it was just like where all my friends were going, so sure. I'd go and have lunch. Um, but we we had to be sort of careful about where we would meet and what we would do because right. our school, even though we were in a tiny little town, um, they were always afraid that the Satan Club was going to want to meet. <laughs> Mitch, there was no Satan Club. But we all lived in fear that if they allowed the Christians to meet, that they would have to let the Satanists meet. Yeah. And God forbid. Yeah. And so that was sort of in my brain. And so as you guys are talking about it, I'm like, this is all not so very different from my high school. And like, we're, you know, just the idea that there would be anything but political secularism right. is, should alarm folks. Yeah. Well, you're going to want to stay tuned uh, for our interview with Professor Jacques. He was outstanding. He's a great friend mm-hmm. of the pod now uh, and supports uh, the work that we're doing. Uh, just, a, just a wonderful guy. And uh, in the interview, I think he even uh, he reveals the fact that he's a Jewish atheist, uh, which was, uh, I, I thought, really intriguing and mm-hmm. demonstrates for our listeners the variety of guests that we have here on Good Faith Weekly. Uh, we are a proponent of all faiths, all faiths, as well as those who profess uh, atheism. We engage them in conversation, and it's productive conversation. It's healthy conversation, and they do the same. And I think it is a beautiful shared humanity that we all have. We can come together and talk about these important issues. So uh, I hope you enjoy the interview. Uh, we'll be right back. I'm Starlet Thomas, and I invite you to join us for Good Faith Stories. It's a new podcast series from Good Faith Media. In each episode of Good Faith Stories, we'll bring you a collection of different stories tied to a theme, unique and true stories as told by the people who live them. Each story is short, six or seven minutes, with a little mood music. Listen to Good Faith Stories wherever you get your podcasts, and find us online at goodfaithmedia.com. Org. Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, we've got a very special guest all the way from our nation's capital. Jacques Berlinblau is currently the Rabbi Harold White Professor of Jewish Civilization at the Edmund A. Walsh School of Foreign Services at Georgetown University. Berlinblau has published on the wide variety of issues ranging from secularism to religion and politics to Jewish-American fiction to African-American and Jewish-American relations to American higher education. He has published 35 scholarly articles and 10 books writing extensively about political secularism. His latest book, Secularism, The Basics, is currently available for purchase. Berlin Blau has written for, appeared on, or had his work discussed in numerous national and international news outlets, such as the New York Times, Washington Post, The Economist, The Guardian, NPR, The Jerusalem Post, Al Jazeera, and CNN. He sounds like he is extremely busy. <laughs> Professor, welcome to Good Faith Weekly. Hi, Mitch. Hi, Autumn. Thank you for having me. 
Uh, well, it's great to you, uh, great that you uh, joined us this week. Uh, we've been asking for the last two years now, Professor, uh, how how you're doing. We're finally, I think, coming out of the pandemic. Uh, but uh, you feeling okay? Everything going well with with you and and those close to you? A feeling of hopefulness and also a sense that a lot of us just have to process what just happened because it hasn't happened in about 100 years. It's a very strange human collective experience. And I think we're all going to need time, no matter who we are, no matter what we believe in, to just make sense of what has just happened in the last uh, 25 months. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So let's start with your interest in secularism. What inspired you to start studying and pursuing the principles of secularism? I think there was a whole, and thank you for the question, of course, I think there was a whole generation of scholars, intellectuals, journalists who were uh, shocked into action after 9-11. I lived across the street from the World Trade Center. At that moment in my life, I would have considered myself, and I was considered a a straight-ahead biblical scholar, an expert on Hebrew Bible. And what I felt at the moment, I mean, I was right underneath the tower looking up at it, is in what way can my scholarship help me and help the world understand what is happening here? And what is happening would have been an explosion, so to speak, of religious extremism. And this is where I began to take an interest in questions of secularism. Mm. Yeah, that's that's a powerful catalyst. That is, that's <laughs> fascinating, Professor. Because I mean, you know, another friend of the pod, Charles Kimball, uh, out of Wake and University of Oklahoma, you know, has written extensively on the dangers of religious extremism uh, in the uh, around the world. And it's interesting that you mentioned nine eleven because when we think of nine eleven, often we think of uh, pivoting the other way of of uh, kind of doubling down on faith and combating faith uh, or extremism with another type of extremism. Mm. But you and and Charles and others like you uh, went in the opposite direction to to, to kind of see how can we address this from a secular standpoint and, and, and the rise of extremism around the world. So I think that's that's very fascinating. Right. The problem wasn't religion. Um, I had no problem with religion. It was religious extremism in particular. I, most of the religious people I knew, I was teaching at a theological seminary uh, at the time out of New Jersey, and I was training uh, folks that would eventually become evangelical ministers. And so my, I had no difficulty whatsoever with people of faith, but this to me was a, a variant or maybe an aberration uh, of faith. And the more I started studying secularism, I realized that it wasn't limited to just Islam, that it came in every flavor and every stripe. There's Hindu nationalism, there's, there's Jewish uh, extremism, there's Christian extremism, Mormon right. extremism. So that's what the event triggered in me. And then I started realizing all these extremisms share a common enemy, and that would be secularism. Well said. And I mean, thank you for saying that, because I think that is a misconception about those who study secularism, those who are advocates for secularism, especially the political secularism that you write about in your book. So about the book, you mentioned variations of definitions of secularism. However, you focus on one in particular that begins with that term I mentioned a moment ago, political secularism, and you do a wonderful job on page six. Can you talk about the variations of that def- of those definitions and the one that you chose to work from in this book? Oh, absolutely. So the first, I, I start the book 
by pointing out that every conversation I think I've ever heard about secularism in a public space is really confused. Uh, not because people aren't intelligent, it's because they're using the term in a variety of different ways. And one very problematic usage of the term secularism is atheism or non-belief or extreme dislike of religion. And what I tried to do in the book was show at least a Christian readership that the roots of secularism emerge from Christian political philosophy, right? No Christian political philosophy, no secularism. So if we didn't have Augustine, if we didn't have Marsilius, William, if we didn't have Luther, if we didn't have Roger Williams, uh, we would have never had political secularism as we know it. So what is political secularism as opposed to secularism as atheism, which I believe is an, an inaccurate definition? Political secularism refers to a philosophical doctrine that argues the state must carefully monitor its own relationship with the various religious groups under its purview. And in addition to that, it must serve as kind of a referee between religious groups under its jurisdiction. So it's two tasks at once for the state, reflecting on how it deals with the variety of faith communities under its jurisdiction, while at the same time making sure that there's fairness, there's calm, there's peace, there's order between these religious groups. Well said. So one of the most striking revelations in the book is when you remind readers how the world's philosophies, theories, and sciences have been primarily influenced by white, cis, gender males. Um, how much do you think this revelation narrowed our understanding of these disciplines? And as a more diverse populace engages these fields, how will that shape the future? Yeah, so let's take the question of secularism, right? Secularism really shows its age when you think about it. So let me show you two ways it shows its age, right? Okay. One, because it's something that emerges in that high-speed thought corridor that races from Luther to John Locke with Roger Williams as an intermediary, right? It doesn't really think about non-believers, right? And non-believers are also part of a polity, right? So there's nothing in secularism originally that addresses them. Uh, the problem with the white cisgendered males uh, is a real drawback of secularism. As I like to tell my students, secularism is a discourse by men conducted by men, which plays itself out on women's bodies, right? It's often telling women how they can or cannot dress. It's often speaking to women about uh, what reproductive technologies they may or may not use. It's often telling women what they can wear in public or what they can't wear. Now, secularism usually comes down, I want to say, on the side of what we would consider women's rights, but, but not always. So, its genome, its genealogy, as emerging from Protestant, Christian, European male thought, tinctures secularism in ways that we need to improve, that we definitely need to improve. So as a, asking you to put your futurist hat on for a moment, as the populace becomes more diverse and those interested in secularism and the develop, further development of secularism uh, widens, how do you see that? Do you see maybe not necessarily in the definition, but especially in the practice of secularism? Do you see that evolving over time? Do you see it evolving now? It's a bad time for secularism now. A really, <laughs> really rough time. It's had a very yeah. difficult 50 years, and there are lots of reasons why. I think the Christian right in the United States in particular has concussed uh, secularism legally. Uh, there are also some questions of poor leadership 
within the community, a lack of innovation, a, a lack of, of forward thinking. What do I see ultimately? Uh, my core belief is most religious Americans are totally into political secularism because I've never met an evangelical Christian who wants to live under a Catholic establishment or vice versa, right? That's mm -hmm. secularism in a nutshell, right? right, right. Not living right. under another religious group's theological worldview, not having a public school teaching religious dogma that you might not agree with, right? These are the old great Baptist insights, right? Mm -hmm. Back when uh, the majority of Baptists were uh, defenders of Mr. Jefferson and fairly strong proponents of the wall of separation, though that needs to be finessed a little bit. They had some reservations with Mr. Jefferson's enthusiasm uh, for this strict high partition <laughs> dividing faith on one side uh, and government on the other. So where do I see it going? There are three communities in which it will grow. Uh, religious minorities, no matter where a religious minority is situated, they usually like secularism for the reasons I just adduced. They don't want to be subject to somebody else's conception of God in public space. The second community would be religious moderates, of which there are many in the United States. We never hear them, and I think that's a media crisis. A lot of our major media organs don't want to let these people speak. Yes, I'm looking at you, editorial page of the New York Times. <laughs> I would love to see a moderate evangelical have a recurring space right, right. Uh, on the New York Times. And um, the third community, so we have religious minorities, we have religious moderates, and we have this growing community of nuns. And the research is showing us the nuns are not necessarily overwhelmingly atheist and agnostic. They're generally folks who have grown disenchanted uh, with the official religious traditions they grew up in. I don't know the data well enough. I think there's a very high proportion of former evangelicals there who just were turned off, uh, not by Jesus and not by God and not by spirituality. They were just turned off by culture wars and yeah. constant politicization. Uh, that's what pushed them out of church. So I think those are the three columns in which if secularism is to persevere, my friends, those are the three constituencies which will help it endure. Well, that's hopeful. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so you mentioned the religious right. Uh, you know, when we use the term secularism today, and part of our mission here at Good Faith Media is to provide an alternative voice to the religious right. Uh, so we've got moderates and progressives that try to develop a theological lens of inclusivity and equality uh, throughout our theology and our practice of theology. But when you use that term secularism within uh, white Christian evangelicalism and even more recently the rise of white Christian nationalism, uh, which I believe is laid dormant for a while, but it's just been re uh, reintegrated or uh, I guess re relaunched. Somebody kicked the rock. Mitch. <laughs> Somebody kicked the rock, and they're all scurrying out. <laughs> but would you use that term secularism in that context? I mean, it's almost the equivalent of Satanism as far as they're concerned. <laughs> Amazing. But yes. in the book, uh, Professor, you do such a marvelous job of demonstrating how secularism was actually developed within faith traditions, mm -hmm. both Jewish traditions and predominantly Christian traditions. So can you talk about that for our audiences? I think this is really important. Sure. So there are two moments. The first moment, I call it proto-secularism, is in the late Middle Ages where Catholic, well, we'll call them Catholic now, then they were Christian. Christian theologians are arguing with their own pope 
about the Pope's unrestricted powers. So that's within the church. And they're, the, they're saying there has to be a limit. And these are thinkers like Marsilius of Padua and William of Ockham. And they're insistent that the Pope's triumphalist and expansive claims to power are not Christ-like. All right, so that's moment number one, an internal church scrum about how much power does the Pope actually have. Now let's fast forward to the 16th century as the body of Christianity is fracturing and the catalyst as always is the remarkable Martin Luther. What a character, I must say, really, what a character. For all his flaws, one of the most important people who ever lived. And what Luther essentially does, uh, it's a double-edged sword, is he argues that the spiritual authority within any community must be completely disarticulated, that is, severed from the use of force. Really important insight, all right? So that if you wear religious garments, if you spiritually counsel others, force, punishment, violence, weaponry, these are not your domain. Stay in your lane. You heal souls, you cater to people, you pastor, uh, you counsel them, and you soothe them. That distinction, that binary, which had always existed in Christianity since the time of Paul, is supersized by Roger Williams, who makes roughly, uh, who sharpens uh, it all. And he had something really interesting. Roger Williams tells us, and Mr. Jefferson picked up on this 150 years later, uniformity in religion is not what God wants. What a beautiful insight. Mm-hmm. Right? God likes multiculturalism. Right? He likes different ways of... And it's a way of getting dialectically at a truth about God is if you have different people that understand and worship God in a different way. Now we get to John Locke, and this is where we get to secularism, where John Locke proposes a hard and fast division between what he calls the magistrate and the churches, plural, the churches, right? The magistrate's job is to maintain peace and order among the churches. This is the 17th century. The churches were busy disemboweling one another. And as I say in my book, it was so bad that no one was getting to God. And that was Locke's great insight. Unless the magistrate pulls himself away, unless the government separates itself from religion, no one is going to be able to worship in peace. And I think that is the starting generating insight of political secularism as we know. Uh, that's a great insight. And you, the mention of Luther, and you do a fabulous job in the book uh, uh, outlining uh, his influences to set the stage for Locke. But as you were sitting there, as you were talking just a moment ago, um, something came to mind in the real world that we live in today, the modern world. Do you think that argument is still being played out between the reformers? Because you have uh, Luther on one side in the Reformation, and then you have uh, Calvin and Zwingli, who are using the power and influence of the state to to push their theological agenda. I mean, and when I you know, when we see images of January sixth in D.C., of course, you were a lot closer than we were to this these events. You saw that kind of language playing out, uh, the utilization of the state in order to uh, perpetuate and to advocate for this restrictive, rigid theology, uh, and it was in a really oppressive manner. And to me, it was almost an extension of what happened in the Reformation between Luther and Calvin, especially, uh, and their attitudes towards the power of the state. Wow, this is it. We're nerding out. I love it. Right? <laughs> I, 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 Pop your popcorn, folks. Here we go. 
So if I could do it all again, I probably would have been a scholar of Luther and Calvin, right? Um, I'm not. I read them pretty intensely. One thing I want to say, though, is for all the the hullabaloo around the differences between Luther and Calvin on this issue, around this one particular issue, in all of Christian political philosophy, I find the same knot, K-N-O-T, right? It goes back to Paul in Romans 13, when Paul is telling Christians they must submit um, to the governing powers. And then he says it again in 2 Peter, right? And it's said again and again throughout text, and, and Jesus, of course, speaks about rendering unto sea, this idea of a binary, right? But this question arises in Christian political philosophy. What do you do with a tyrannical ruler? What do you do with a ruler who is out of control, who is oppressing you? Now, because Paul thought the return of the Messiah was imminent, I think his view was like, yeah, whatever, you know, grin and bear it. Uh, <laughs> the world's coming to an end, Messiah, right? Yeah, right, right. All right, so the Messiah didn't come, and... I think Luther confronts the question and Calvin confronts the question and Locke confronts, and none of them know what to do about it. They're all staunch advocates of the power of the state to maintain order and to assure civil peace in their different ways. Mm -hmm. I don't think any one of them has a good answer to this problem of the tyrannical ruler because they're thinking on the basis of Christian scriptures, which do, after all, tell Christians. I know it's forgotten in some sectors of the evangelical community to submit to the ruling authority. So it's an inner Christian theological knot. What do you do with this tyrant? What is proper Christian comportment vis-a-vis -vis this tyrant? This isn't secularism per se, but it's a question that keeps popping up within secularism. What Locke did, guys, is he recognized that there must be some types of internal constraint on that magistrate. So when we talk about secularism, right, a functioning secularism, as I say in the book, is like a referee, all right? When there's a good referee, you don't notice it, right? You just enjoy the game. Everybody's out worshiping, doing right, whatever, right. not worship, whatever. When secularism isn't working, uh, people are contesting the legitimacy of the rules, right? So what Locke understood is that a good secular state has to have checks and balances on itself. Like what? Mm -hmm. A functioning judiciary, multi-party system, free and fair elections, uh, courts that actually listen to aggrieved parties. And this is, I think, where secularism has a lot of room for improvement in terms of its self-regulating mechanism, right? Cleaning itself up. Because there have been a lot of failed secularists, by the way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you lay out in the book 10 principles of political secularism. We don't want to go all over all of them because we want people to buy your book and we're going to have links in our show notes so you can buy that book. Uh, but we do want to discuss the first two, equality and power. The equality principle stipulates that in the eyes of the secular state, all human beings are equal. So here is an honest question. Sure. How can the U.S. ever achieve genuine equality when the foundation of our country is built on inequality. You bingo, right? And definitely not a gotcha question, right? Because as I was telling my students yesterday, we were talking about Mr. Jefferson. We were actually watching clips from the Broadway musical 1776. The oh, yeah, great musical. It's so good. It's right. so good. It was good, but it's a bit of a whitewash. Yeah, yeah, sure, it's sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, when you look at it with Hamilton, you're like, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Jefferson, right? So, so the problem with Jefferson and having taught many African-American students, it's they that helped me realize there's a, a Jefferson concern and it's a legitimate concern. I think where I grew up, we used to say Thomas Jefferson, right? It's like, hooray, right? The, the founder of our republic, the person who thought it all out for us. And then Madison gets you know, to mention as well. Um, Jefferson emerges as a much more problematic character when we recognize um, that he didn't understand the equality principle, right? that he lived in a world where human beings were enslaved. He spoke to people that told him it was a really bad idea when he was minister in France while Mr. Madison was laboring over the Bill of Rights. It's not as if Jefferson didn't know. It wasn't like nobody thought, nobody had this insight that enslaved And was benefiting people, from it, right? He was benefiting from it. Right. He was, he was sexually benefiting from it as well, as we know, reading a very interesting sexual biography of Thomas Jefferson. So yes, on equality, Autumn, uh, Jefferson is not our reference point. I feel better with like Genesis 127, 120. I'm, I'm better with God than I am with Jefferson saying God created us all in its or his or her image. And because we're all created in God's image, we have this fundamental dignity, and every government has to recognize, that's my stretch, every government has to recognize that dignity equally, because we all have it because God gave it to us. That's my favorite verse in the Bible, by the way, Genesis 1.26. I love it. I absolutely love mm -hmm. it. Well, the second principle is church and state, and they are the two binary powers of culture. Now, just so you know, we've got a lot of Baptist listeners who champion religious liberty and church-state separation. I mean, we're talking folks who absolutely adore Thomas Helwes and uh, and John Smith and Roger Williams and John Leland and Isaac Backus and, you know, just Madison Jefferson on the political side of things. But one of the things that has been really problematic, I think, throughout history has been that simple definition. Uh, Roger Williams calls it the hedge that protects uh, the sacred from the secular. Uh, Jefferson picks up on that kind of language and, and talks about uh, the a wall. And then, of course, Justice Black, which you mentioned in the book, you know, extends it to an impregnable wall uh, in his decision. It's this 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 evolution of this metaphor of separation in church and state. So, with those two being the binary powers that we exist within, what's a healthier definition of church-state separation? Okay, wow. First of all, thank you so much, both of you, for reading so carefully. I mean, this is great. This is a, like a conversation in the faculty lounge, so I, I really, really appreciate it. Um, the wall metaphor. I just wrote a piece for Salon.com uh, where I basically said it's time to abandon separation. All right, so let's go back a step. Baptists are heroes of American secularism. I keep referring back to this anecdote I heard that uh, Mr. Madison was in like an Anglican prison. He was walking through an Anglican-run prison, and there was either one or two Baptist dissenters um, being tortured. And after they had been tortured, I don't know if I got the story completely right. This might be apocryphal, right? One of them was howling in his prison cell, like frothing at the mouth because of the punishment he received mm -hmm. at the hands of the Anglican inquisitors. And this left a huge impression on Mr. Madison, right? He understood no just or fair republic could ever have this sort of dynamic present. All right, let's talk about separation. What the historians tell us is that there was a little daylight between Mr. Jefferson and Mr. Madison on the question of separation. 
uh, Mr. Jefferson interpreted in his letter to the Danbury Baptists, and let's give a great shout out to the Danbury Baptists. Yeah, for us Baptists, there's the Bible, and then there's the Danbury letter. Yeah. <laughs> They're all, that's not quite equal, but pretty close. Sure, absolutely. Um, and for us secularists, there's Miles Davis, and there's the Danbury Baptists. So I love that. Yeah. Love it. So, the, in that letter to the Danbury Baptists, Mr. Jefferson does something very strange. He interprets the 16 words of the First Amendment, which were written by Mr. Madison. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. He interprets those words, the famous thus. If, if your listeners go back and read his letter, he, thus, thus, yeah. there shall be a wall of separation. And what the Christian right was uncannily smart in understanding was that Mr. Jefferson's interpretive gloss was a weakness for America. They understood that. They understood that the word separation of church and state are not in the Constitution, and they understood that the word secularism not only was not in the Constitution, it didn't exist yet. It first existed mm -hmm. in 1851. So Jefferson's obsession with a wall was not matched by Mr. Madison, who spoke of lines of separation, not a wall, lines of separation. I know this is going to sound like high heresy, but in that piece I just mentioned, I have a line, enough with walls uh, for progressive folks. It's an illiberal metaphor. I know people who wanted walls. For the last four years, I heard somebody screaming about a wall. Right? <laughs> right. I don't want a wall. There are other ways to be secular. Secular Separationist secularism is one form of political secularism, but it's not the only form of political secularism, and I think you had asked earlier, Autumn, I think about the future of American secularism. I think the future is innovating, maybe looking to other countries like India and its obsession mm -hmm. with equal respect for all believers, and I would add non-believers, though India is having a very rough time right now in terms of its – I think that's – I think going back to the equality principle might be a really good idea. And one thing I like to joke about is how the 14th Amendment – is better than the first, right? The 14th Amendment, equal protection under the law for all citizens might be easier for us to work with judicially than that very complicated uh, mm. complicated religion clauses of the First Amendment. Well, I'm glad you mentioned other countries because this last question I have, I'm going to turn you over to Autumn, uh, Professor, but um, I am a Muscogee Creek. I understand the harm that religious dominionism can have upon a, a minority people or a people that do not have power. I'm a couple of generations away from having my ancestors uh, walk a trail of tears as well as be, uh, I would say, in prison in uh, American boarding schools in the name of religion. So I am a strong advocate for a secular state. I am also very faithful to the person that I identify as my religious uh, Lord, and that's Jesus Christ. But at the same time, we get caught in the trap of always interpreting the world through an America-centric view uh, and lens. But you talk about secularism around the world. Can you just hit some highlights about maybe some of the differences between France? You mentioned India as well. But the difference between those movements of secularism and the U.S. Absolutely. And I want to hit some of the lowlights, too, because I don't want – I'm not an advocate per se uh, for secularism. I think it's a much better idea than what we're facing. But there have been some failures. So highlights – I find Indian secularism really interesting. I refer to it as accommodationism. 
the idea is that religion and spirituality are good things for a polity. And a government has an interest in um, endorsing right, or helping religious groups do their things. That's it. So an accommodationist principle means that uh, a government does everything it can with the principle of equality in mind to fund if necessary, to help out, to support, and let religious people do their thing. Now, there are clearly problems with this. What about non-religious people? What about crazy religious people, right? But in theory, that's the idea. By the way, that accommodationist model is precisely what the Office of Faith-Based Initiatives and Neighborhood Partnerships was about. That was as if India had smuggled its way in to the United States. That wasn't separationism. The other model, which is very controversial, is laïcité. That's the French version. That's hardcore, right? Mm -hmm. um, the state mm -hmm. controls religion, though I do. You know my name is Jacques, right? Mm -hmm. I'm proud to be French. I want to stress laïcité grants tremendous freedom of conscience and freedom of religion to its citizens. It just has very particular rules about public displays, right? But what can be done in public shared citizen space? Bad secularism. So they're bad. Soviet Union and its successor states, I would never advocate for that. Those are secularisms. Mm -hmm. Their secularism's gone wild, right? Their secularism's run amok, gone, right? And we really have to learn from the mistakes of the Soviet model, which we now find in the People's Republic of China. Uh, we have to learn from those mistakes and never repeat them. So there's a family, there's a spectrum of secularisms around the world, right? And I think it's time for American secular thinkers, believers and non-believers alike, to start innovating and start looking around and moving away from our rigid and unfortunately collapsing separationist model and wall. Well said, sir. Well said. Professor Jacques Berlinblau, thank you so much for being our guest on Good Faith Weekly. His book, Secularism, The Basics, is currently available for purchase right now wherever you purchase your reading materials. But, Professor, before we let you go, Autumn's got one last question for you. Yes, our tagline at Good Faith Media is there's more to tell. So in light of our conversation and your new book, what is your more to tell? My more to tell, because there's another side to me, um, uh, which studies art, is the phenomenal power of music and literature and poetry and dance and cinema uh, to make us better people, to make us worse people, to bring us closer to God, to make us question God. Um, I, I live in a world where I'm always awed by the arts and how little sway they actually have in our lives and all the great good they can do for all of us. So if I were to tell you more, I would talk to you a lot about tremendous feelings of spirituality when listening to great musicians, right? And as an atheist, a uh, Jewish atheist, that's a hard feeling to explain, but I would, I really want to interrogate that one day. Like why, when I listen to music, do I, I've often said to myself, I must feel as good right now listening to Miles Davis or Pharaoh Sanders as those folks in church are on Sunday when they're singing and standing up and feeling the Holy Spirit come upon them. So I'm, I'm intrigued by that symmetry. I love that. Now, I do have a follow-up question. Who's the most important artist in the last decade? Most important in which domain? Um, in literature, in music, in, give me a, give me a, in literature? Yeah, let's go with literature. Yeah, the guy I studied, even though he's got a lot of problems, I just wrote a book about him, Philip Roth was a trailblazer because he he 
instituted uh, a type of artistic representation in which the artist speaks about the artist within the work of art. That's called metafiction or autofiction. Mm -hmm. And everyone does it now. So in terms of influence, Roth is a very, very big guy. But, you know, give me John Coltrane and Miles Davis and jazz. <laughs> I'm good. Man, we have to maybe play some uh, uh, Davis on the, the way out uh, of this segment. So, uh, Jacques, thank you so much uh, for being our guest this week. It has been a delight, sir, and very enlightening. Thank you for being with us. Thank you, Mitchell, and thank you all. This was great. Thank you. To our listeners, we want to thank you for tuning in once again this week at Good Faith Weekly. Autumn and I will be back next week with another guest and look forward to being with you. Until then, keep living good faith.